If you love theater, then surely there was a play that changed your life. So that's the question that the American Theater Wing posed to 19 of America's most distinguished and creative playwrights. We asked them to identify the particular moment of inspiration when they were called to the theater. The results are compiled in our new book, The Play That Changed My Life, edited by Ben Hodges. Hello, I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and we're joined today by two of those 19 playwrights, Tina Howe and Diana Sun. Welcome to you both. Thank you. When we embarked on the book and I started telling people the title, there was an assumption made by many people that what we were asking you was the play of your own that changed <sighs> your life. And certainly from the outside, people would say to you, well, it must have been Stop Kiss, and perhaps to you, Painting Churches. But maybe that's a false assumption. So let me ask you that other question. What was the play of your own that changed your life? Diana. Um, well, I mean, the, I, I would also answer Stop Kiss, although, really, I could look at every play, you know, and say that this play changed my life because it, it brought on, you know, the next thing. Um, but I, you know, f because I came from, r really different from Tina, you know, I came from uh, a background where I did not see theater, wasn't exposed to plays, you know, that um, every experience really, even up till now, s seems to me transformative. Hmm. But in your career, I mean, when, when Stop Kiss was done at the public in 98, I believe? Yeah, 98, 99. Um, was it that single production? Because it was also taken up and done by many theaters mm -hmm. after that. So was it, was it the experience of that production and the way it broke through in here in New York, or was it realizing that it was breaking through across the country? And, and how, did you, how did you react to that? Right. I mean, both. I mean, you know, the, certainly, you know, the good reviews and all that stuff um, brought people to see the play, you know, who didn't otherwise know my work. Um, and from there, those subsequent productions, you know, also just took my work, you know, beyond New York City, which is so important, you know, if you want to be, you know, a working playwright. Hmm. Tina, what was well, the play for you? <laughs> my experience is the exact reverse. I think the play that changed my life, my play, was my second play, Birth and Afterbirth, um, which explored the um, tension between the women who choose to have children and the women who don't because I wrote it in the 70s at a time when women seemed to be um, divided in terms of either being domestic or having careers. And, and, and uh, my German sister-in-law said to me after my five years of marriage and not having any children, she said, Tina, you are not a woman until you have the children. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I don't know about that. And I think somebody has to write a play about this because it's such a painful, complicated, thorny, um, horrendous, um, you know, um, sort of dilemma. And so I wrote this play sort of inspired by UNESCO um, that was pushed into the realms of, of absurdity in which there were two couples sort of vying with each other. The first couple have a four-year-old child who's played by a large, hairy man. And the second couple are childless, but they are anthropologists who study children in primitive cultures. It was a very wild play, so wild that um, when my agent submitted it to every self-respecting theater in the country, it was turned down again and again and again. And it did not see the light of day for 23 years. And so what I learned, the play, that play taught me that I cannot 
put on the, the mantle of somebody like Ionesco and, and examine female rituals and, and, and female situations and hope to have a career in the theater because it's too incendiary. And from that moment on, I started writing my well-mannered white glove plays <laughs> and, and, and minding my manners and being a lady. <laughs> you said it was 23 years before it was produced. When it finally got produced, and after you'd done all of your white glove plays, as you call them, um, did you go back and rework the piece, or did you, was it still the piece essentially? I did rework it because the end wasn't quite right, and I and I knew that I had to, you know, get back into the world of the play. And I was offered um, one of these sort of. Um, work things where you're invited to a university to work on a play and teach and have the play be read and so this gave me an opportunity to work on it and meanwhile both the Wilma Theatre and the Woolly Mammoth wanted to do it so I, I had you know productions looming and I have to say I had wonderful productions but each one was viciously attacked <laughs> for being outre and doesn't Tina know that absurdism has had its heyday, it's, it's dead and gone and doesn't she know that one doesn't behave like this on the stage and when is she going to pull herself together and go back and write the sorts of plays that we love. So for me, um, that play and sort of exploring my inner darker frisky side um, made it clear that I had to watch it. Hmm. A sad story. Mm -hmm. For how long? <laughs> how long did you feel like you had to watch it? I still feel that way, and I'm very aware of my plays that, that I call my white glove plays that are well-behaved with vaguely alcoholic wasps drifting up and down New England <laughs> beaches reciting Yeats and being charming and, and in a way being harmless in their charm because they don't have power anymore and being eccentric and, and verbal um, and that there's something, I think because it's a vanishing breed, I think audiences love to spend time with them. But the minute I go back into, you know, female experience of, of having babies or of being a wife or um, I wrote a play about an older woman falling in love with a younger man um, and that play has never been done by anyone <laughs> because there's something so scandalous about the, about the image of, of a young man in the arms of an older woman. It, yet it seems almost that that's a topic now that's popular in the media. In and, the movies. And, and my God, and, and Harold and Maud yeah. years ago in even the movies. dealt with that. But, but, but I think on the theater, in the theater, and, and it's, a, it's a comedy. I mean, the woman is not a, a virago. She doesn't have pointed teeth, and she's not a cradle robber. She's not a cougar. Right, and there's no blood. No blood is, is shed. Um, if anything, she's going through menopause, so she's very dizzy and, and getting hot flashes and laughing and sort of collapsing and leaking in the corner. So she's a complete mess. She's the playwright, and he's the young leading man. Hmm. Um, because I, well, I, I'm talking too much. I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's interesting, and and it it raises questions of, you know, when you have success, when a certain play or a certain style of play achieves success for you, are you expected to continue to mine that? I mean, it's interesting with Stop Kiss. I've read comments from you that you know there were expectations that in fact, well, first the issue of people assumed that you were gay because you had written a play which dealt with female relationships mm -hmm. and whether that informed that when you went on to something else were people looking for more along the same line or were you free to to explore whatever you wanted to explore in your next work? 
I think I'm, it must have been a pretty conscious decision to, to write something different, just because I, I, I don't know about you, Tina, but I, I, I sort of, I really bristle when the assumption is made that what you've written about is autobiographical. You know, of course, we're always in our characters somewhere, but just the idea that literally people wanted to know, like, did this happen to you? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Were you are, are you gay? Were you attacked? And I, you know, of course I wanted to write with authenticity, but I also thought that, you know, when I was a little girl and I wanted to become a writer, it was because I liked to use my imagination. Yes. And I, you know, and now as an adult writer, you know, I feel like what makes me a writer is that I'm creative. <laughs> I can make something out of nothing. Um, and so uh, I, it, it was a kind of um, uh, uh, kind of irritating experience. I, I mean, irritating. I, I understood where people were coming from, but I also felt that it was somehow demeaning me as an artist. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it took some time for me to write my next play because I had a child in between. But um, when I wrote Satellites, um, it, first of all, topically, it was just a little bit more um, of interest to me because I had started a family and the couple in, in Satellites are, have just had a baby. And and, and for me, having uh, a child, you know, my husband's Caucasian, and so we had this, you know, beautiful Eurasian boy, and, and it sort of made me think about, like, what, you know, onto whom I passed on some features, you know, he's got black hair, and he's got kind of not quite, you know, um, round eyes. And I thought, like, well, what am I passing on besides my genes? You know, what of my legacy and, 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 and my own background? I grew up a very Americanized, I had a very Americanized childhood. So that was really vital to me. Um, and that, so I did want to write about that. Um, but I also consciously knew that, like, you know, I was writing something really different from Stop Kiss. And that I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to show, like, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about, you know, what's you and what's the character. I mean, David Henry Wong wrote a play last year, um, Yellowface, in which he made himself a character, yet mm -hmm. it's the facts of the play are not, in, they are partially true and they are partially false, and he's pretty good about being cagey about which parts are real and, and which parts are fiction. Do you, at any time in your writing, actively say, I want to put some part of myself into this character or this story beyond the outline of, say, a couple that has just had a child? I've written a series of 10-minute plays and one-act plays um, because, what, theaters and actors say there aren't enough parts for women and can you write us a plays, you know, for young women or old women? And I find that all of my short plays are all about myself. It's very embarrassing because I think what I enjoy more than anything else is making fun of myself and showing myself as a fool um, who was completely overwhelmed. And so I have these seven little plays about this large, leaking Tina character. And nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing um, actors perform these plays and seeing myself um, failing over and over again. But in the end, um, there's always a transformation. And in the end, the, the leaking Tina character always becomes something titanic. And there's so I get great enjoyment out of doing that. Um, but I think with the longer plays, um, I mean, one of the things that seems to me about being a playwright, I mean, the, the joy and the power comes from, number one, being able to rewrite your past, and number two, being able to decorate your fantasies. Mm -hmm. 
And so that becomes huge so that you can take, for instance, with painting churches, um, when people would ask me, is this autobiographical, I, I developed this very coy, meaningless response. It's all true, but none of it happened, which really doesn't mean anything at all. But it's a great soundbite. Yeah, yeah, it is a great mm -mm. soundbite. But, mm -hmm. um, but I was able to take um, my situation of being, oh, this is so pathetic, of being sort of the unloved child in terms of me and my brother, of being the one that was kind of hidden and under the radiator, and flipping it around and um, trying to make my parents see me. And, um, and I changed everything. I changed you know, what I did. I changed the nature of my parents. But it was basically a play about, about a young woman struggling to be seen and struggling to be appreciated. And in the course of writing it, I began understanding why my mother in particular was so unhappy and why she was such a, you know, a sort of a problematic mother. And I got very moved by realizing, oh, this poor woman, in a way, didn't have a chance because of how she grew up. And so what began as an attempt to sort of expiate and get rid of, of my own feelings of, of unworthiness turned into something completely different about being able to understand and forgive my mother. Um, and so, you know, it was about me rewriting a past that I never quite had. And I think there's a tremendous feeling of joy and power in that, that, um, that that's something that's always available to us. And, you know, you look at Tennessee Williams and you see that I think he does that over and over and over again. I love Tina's use of the word leaking because I think <laughs> I wanted it is, to ask yeah. Ashley what you mean I, by that. Oh, really? Can I tell what Please. I think it means is it's that it's unconscious and out of your control. Please. You know, and you, okay. can, and you can't stop it. Hmm. You know, it's, it, you know, I think, you know, for, you know, for example, in satellites, that was the first time I really specified that the character was Korean-American, right? Because it, she hires this Korean nanny because she wants the kid, the baby, to hear Korean and stuff. Um, and then her husband is African-American, and they've moved to this sort of gentrifying neighborhood in Brooklyn that was, you know, formerly African-American. Um, and some people, you know, because I actually did move to Brooklyn, and at the time I wrote that, I had one child. I have three now. But... Um, People just assume that this was my play, that I wrote about this, that my husband, you know, you know, my husband said, like, are, is everyone going to think I'm African-American just like they thought you were gay, you know, <laughs> after Stop Kiss? And I said, probably, you know. Um, but, you know, you know, as I said before, there was a very real issue for me in terms of, like, what I was really thinking about, you know, raising my son every day is, what am I passing on, you know? And that is really the dilemma of the of the female character in that play mm -hmm. but I never felt like I was writing about me mm -hmm. I think if I did I would never have been able to write that play I'm not interested in spending 90 minutes with me you know what I mean or bringing people together so that they can watch me you know on a stage for you know an hour and a half but mm -hmm. what about a version of yourself I mean that's what I love is 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 sort of creating a version of myself. I created a very glamorous version of myself and had Annette Benning play her. Mm -hmm. And there was something fantastic about that. Um, you know, so that you take, I mean, I agree that, that we have large issues that we want to explore and that, that, and that we're playwrights because we have an imagination, but there is sort of a thrill about taking that imagination and either turning yourself into a goddess or turning yourself into a creep and, um, and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just suggesting maybe that's something yeah. that would give you enormous pleasure to do um, just because 
um, it, it helps you understand um, yourself, and it helps you um, get revenge, and it helps you make people <laughs> laugh, and it, and, it, and it sort of entertains an audience. I think that's very much what my, what my arc as a playwright is going to be, is probably increasingly, you know, getting behind this idea that I am writing about myself, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and, and, and therefore allowing myself to be really creative yeah, and yeah. really, you know, sort of to refract yes. the vision of myself. You and, know, the disguises, and the disguises you create, yeah. that's the whole joy. Yeah. It's those fabulous scales and feathers that you put on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we talk about self, obviously the, the motivating idea behind the book, the play that changed my life, was to talk about influences. And Tina, you began to talk about your family, and, and Diana, you mentioned your family as well, and kind of the environment in which you were raised. So, so let me ask more explicitly, where was theater in your life as a child, as a teenager? Ultimately, you write in the book about an experience that you had in 12th grade. Tina, you write about something that happened once you graduated college. Mm -hmm. But prior to those events, was, was theater a part of your life? Was theater where you thought you were headed? I'll ask Diana. First. Oh, you know, absolutely not, because uh, there was a theater where I grew up. I mean, I grew up in Dover, Delaware. It's a very small town. I think pro maybe there might, be, there might have been some theater going on in Wilmington. But that was an hour away. And, you know, my parents um, were Korean immigrants. We owned a drugstore in, a, in, a, in, a, in an even smaller town, um, about half an hour south of there. So our life was just like work, you know, work and home and school. Um, and presumably TV. TV. I watched a lot of TV. Mm -hmm. I watched a lot of TV. That was my cultural experience. And then, you know, as I got older, movies. Um, but I did not, my parents never took me to theater. My parents never took me on vacation, you know. Um, so uh, when I went, you know, as a high school senior to see a play for the first time, I mean, you know, as, as I wrote, I mean, that, it was completely transformative. Well, we'll come back to the specific play. Tina, you had a very different upbringing. Yeah, but, it, uh, but like Diana, I, um, theater was not part of my upbringing. You were um, raised here in New York, I was though. raised in New York City, and my father, Quincy Howe, um, did the evening news on CBS radio. He was a news commentator, meaning that he both wrote the news and delivered it. Um, and he came from a very literary family, so all of the conversation was about belles lettres. Um, there were poets in my family, biographers, novelists. It was all about the written word. And I think my parents took me to see The Red Barn, The Red, the red Mill by Victor Herbert, mm -hmm. um, with people in costumes twirling around the stage. And it made absolutely no impression on me. Mm -hmm. But I think because my father was a, a sort of um, a very serious Calvinistic um, suffering Brahmin that he loved the Marx Brothers because the <laughs> Marx Brothers movies gave you license to surrender to the absurd and to laugh yourself into a soup. And so on the weekends to sort of relax from our very high-minded weekdays, um, we always went to the Marx Brothers movies. And that, to me, you know, seeing all of that, that sort of mayhem that was allowed, encouraged, and appreciated that was huge. For me, you know, my big moment was when I lived in Paris for a year and walked into the Théâtre de la Huchette and saw the Ball Soprano 
because the behavior was so akin to the behavior in my house with all of these high-minded people who kept talking all the time. But in this case, the, the language flew out of control, and it made everybody laugh. And the audience was in stitches as the characters, you know, courageously soldiered on. And, and I thought, ah, this is it. This is, what, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to live in a world where I can create this kind of mayhem for people to watch in a dark room. Mm -hmm. So it was odd. I overlooked one experience that actually I mentioned in the essay, which is I had this uh, family friend, uncle, who I called Uncle Don, Don Horowitz, and he was um, married to a Korean woman that my mom had known in Korea. And they lived in Delaware, too. And he was a total theater buff. And he acted in the local community, um, you know, community singers productions. And he was going to play um, Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, so we had to go. So that was, in fact, really the first play <laughs> I ever saw. It was a musical, right? But I went to see Uncle Don play Tevye. And, um, yeah, Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof, on the roof was, was actually the first professional show I ever saw. Is that but right? as a Jewish kid, it uh -huh. was pretty obvious. Right. That was <laughs> right. And then uh, the next summer, then he was in My Fair Lady at a smaller role. But anyway, he said, "Do you want to work backstage?" And it was summer, and I was bored. Right? Summer is just was just deadly boring because my parents were at work all day, and it was either go to work with them, you know, or stay home. So I um, I, I volunteered to work backstage, and so. So really, my second experience in the theater was then being, you know, behind the curtain. And that was, you know, that was really fascinating to me. I mean, of course, you know, you're sitting in rehearsal, you're bored, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I did, you know, I was pretty enchanted by and mesmerized by that transformation of these people. Because also Dover is pretty, like, small town and kind of rural. So these people would come in with, like, big boots and flannel shirts and, you know, even the women and stuff. And then they, you know, they'd put on, these, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the costumes from My Fair Lady. It was influential, but it didn't totally, um, you know, push me into theater. Yeah, it was just like, sort of like, that's intriguing, you know. But when it was over, I didn't think, I've got to get back. You know, uh, you know, be a stagehand again. <laughs> well, but your story about Hamlet, about reading Hamlet, and your identification with the young, struggling, unhappy teenager, and then seeing Diane Venora, I just loved, 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 loved what you wrote, your essay about the, the play that changed your life, because it was so vivid. And who thinks of Hamlet as being a contemporary? I just uh -huh. love that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what's also interesting is that in some ways that experience for you was accidental because I don't want to give away the whole story, but it was accidental in the sense that when your teacher learned that Hamlet was being played by a man, if she could have, she'd have returned the yeah. tickets and you wouldn't have had that experience. She said, yeah, yeah. She said, oops, it's too late. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's, it's remarkable what hits you. Um, yeah. This is going to be my closest moment to doing Gotcha TV, but I want to read you <laughs> an email um, that I received yesterday. Um, we've certainly started hearing from people who've read the book. Um, and uh, let me just read. Miss Sun's writing is captivating. Her story was like watching a movie, so clear, precise, emotionally engaging. It brought me back to that time in my life when everything in it felt impossible, painful, desperate, and thrilling all at once. It's a privilege to have made such an impression on this passionately gifted writer. This is from Diane Venora. Awesome. Oh, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. So, great. you know, what's, what I wanted to ask in the way of that is, have, do you have the experience of people writing to you or trying to reach out to you and wanting to tell you not only that your play has moved them, but why? 
Yes. Yes. What Standing in line at Fairway, some person will come up to me and <laughs> say, Miss Howe, could, could you reach that box of cereal? Because <laughs> you're so tall. <laughs> um, no, yeah, people do. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and you're always sort of stunned and grateful and say, would you say it again, please? Right. It's, um, yeah. I think my fans tend to be women because, um, you know, I've, I've been writing so clearly about female experience. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I tend to hear about from people via email because that's sort of, you know, a little bit more um, of... Well, you're in Brooklyn. You're not... You didn't yeah. realize Fairway oh, was the place to be. I'll take it to Fairway Red Hook. Yeah. Um, but um, people find me on email and also, you know, via fa Facebook, you know. Um, and so you do hear from people who really, you know, are, are, are not connected to you at all and saw a production in Kentucky you know, or they did it in their college, or, I mean, I'm actually thrilled um, at the number of small theaters yeah. and small town theaters that do Stop Kiss. It's really, it's very inspiring and gratifying. Um, but I do hear from those people. Again, one of the more interesting things that came out in the book, and you should explain that everybody wrote in isolation. It's not that we gave anybody anything other than the topic. You all didn't know who else was gonna mm -hmm. be in the book with you. And there are themes that come through, and one of the themes that I was delighted that came through is the breadth of theater in the United States. How many of the writers wrote about community theater? You know, community theater is considered a pejorative by so many professionals, and people like Beth Henley um, and Sarah Rule were writing about that this is where they, you know, became known. So as you say, it's remarkable. I mean, when you get that royalty statement once every six months, that's when you get to look at the list and know where your play is done because mm -hmm. you don't always know, mm -hmm. I assume. You don't know where yeah. each and every production of your play is. And then you might go, good gosh, you know, but Miss, then, Mississippi. But then, in a way, there's community theater in New York because there's off-Broadway. Off and, you know, writers get homes in those small theaters that, um, that don't um, cast their plays with stars and where there's not tons of money. But um, it seems to me that, that community theater exists in a way in, in small um, rooms and basements in New York City. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a slightly different contract. It may not be a Lort contract, but, um, but I feel that there... I, th I feel that, it, that theater is not simply Broadway and off-Broadway, but there's other theater going on at the same time. Hmm. We've talked about parents and family and upbringing, and we've gotten, we've touched upon the plays that you wrote your essays about. Um, there is a teacher who's prominent yeah. in your essay, yeah. um, both for good and, you know, not for ill, really, but as I said, probably not as broad-minded as, as some people say, I had a teacher who opened my yeah. eyes. So I wanted to ask you both about teachers that you may have had, be it in high school, be it in college, and, and their impact on your moving towards careers in the theater. I mean, I've had teachers all along the way. I mean, I can directly map my path to being here to teachers. You know, so when I was nine years old and in the fourth grade, and I also had an older brother, you know, um, whom I was overlooked for. <laughs> and um, 
And uh, every year, you know, at elementary school, I'd get a new teacher, and on the first day of school, they'd go, and you know, go down the roster and say, "Oh, and Diana's son, <gasps> Diana's son, are you Grant's son's sister?" <laughs> oh, oh, I, oh, I hope was... you'll be as good of a student as oh. Grant's son was. And it, you know, obviously, it's absolutely devastating to your self-esteem and your sense of yeah, self, yeah. right? So, in the fourth grade, I had this teacher, Mrs. Russell. And we had this assignment around Thanksgiving to write about what you were thankful for. And she said, I really want you to think about it. I really want you to, you know, find something in your life that you're thankful for. So I went home and I wrote that I was thankful for my family, including my brother, who was really the bane of my childhood. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I went back, you know, turned it in, and we ran out to recess. And when we came back, a teacher had read our essays and she said, she said, you know, I'm so disappointed in all of you. You know, I asked you to really think about this and find something that had meaning to you. Everyone wrote about their toys and their games and their bicycles and their clothes. And only one student <laughs> wrote about something that really had meaning to them. And that student is Diana's son. And I'm going to hang her essay up on the wall so everyone could read it. Now, I would say the story of my life is she never did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, that was, I mean, that was it. I decided then I was going to be a writer and I never wow. changed my mind, hmm. you know. And then in high school, I had Mrs. Levitt. She took, you know, as a high school senior, she took me to see Hamlet. I thought, I want to be a playwright. I want to go to NYU because I went to the public theater, which was next to NYU. At NYU, I, w I had a seminal teacher named Yuna Chowdhury who totally introduced me to Ionesco and Genet and, you know, Peter Weiss and, you know, all these amazing, you know, um, European yes. experimental yes, playwrights. Yes. And that is also, that's what I fell in love with. Hmm. What Fiddler Ruth didn't do to me then, you know, Ionesco did for me later. Hmm. Team, I never had a mentor. And I sometimes get very misty-eyed around those that did. Um, um, I was a bad student in high school. Um, I'm the one sort of looming figure in high school, how do I say this? My father was blacklisted and left CBS and took a job essentially teaching the New York Times at the University of Illinois. <laughs> and the University of Illinois had a lab school connected to it where they would experiment with different educational programs. And the lab school was called University High School. And I was always a bad student, but uh, because I had this well-known father, they had to let me in. And so I went to uni high and continued to get bad grades because I, <laughs> I never figured out the connection between class and homework. I never figured out that you were supposed to do anything after you were through with the class. And so uh, I was not a good student. But, um, but our drama teacher was Wilfred Leach, who was getting his PhD <laughs> at the University of Illinois. And, and I remember he staged um, a, one of his plays called something like The Zodiac of Memphis Street. And I was never cast because I was too tall and weird, but I admired him from the sidelines and would see like my other friends, you know, and I, and I never studied with him. And then when I went to Sarah Lawrence, lo and behold, there he was. Um, and he taught, I think, a, a class in costume. <laughs> and I took it because it was Wilfred Leach, but um, I never knew I had any voice and I never, you know, studied playwriting with him. Um, and after Sarah Lawrence, I mean, I wrote a little, a little play at, in Sarah Lawrence just because I had to write something for my senior year. And, and my big moment was that um, Jane Alexander decided to direct it, this terrible little play about the end of the world. 
with pigeons and kings and queens, and it was so pretentious, like Beckett, who I had never read, so you can imagine how terrible it was. But because it was Sarah Lawrence and about the end of the world, it was a triumph, and everybody screamed, author, author, and I ran up to the stage and threw kisses um, until they pulled me off with the hook. <laughs> and then my father said, I'll either send you to Europe for a year or graduate school, and I always loved Paris and f anything French. And so I went to, Jane and I sailed to Europe together on a little student boat. And, and her ultimate goal was Edinburgh to study mathematics, and mine was the Sorbonne to study philosophy. And within two weeks, Jane was acting in the fringe, and I was writing my first full-length play, never having studied playwriting. Hmm. Um, but it was seeing the ball soprano that absolutely dazzled me. And I think where I learned my craft, whatever my craft is, was <laughs> when I came back to the States, I got married, and to put my husband through both college and graduate school, I became a high school English teacher. <laughs> and it wasn't enough to have four preparations a day. You also had to run an extracurricular activity. And at both um, the school in Maine and in Wisconsin, um, they asked if I would run the theater club. And I said, oh, yes, but only if I can write all the plays. <laughs> Huh. And they were so desperate, they said, okay. And so <laughs> I began writing plays for my students and directing them. And if you can hold a gymnasium full of, of a thousand, you know, hormonally wild teenagers, you can do pretty much anything. And that's where I learned my craft, <laughs> is, is writing these plays for teenagers. And I have always longed for some bearded professor to pat me on the head and enfold me in his robes and tell me how wonderful I am, but I've never had that. In, huh, interesting. Yet, there may be, as you say, a thousand kids who sat in the auditorium and saw your early plays, yeah. probably, you know, not knowing that this was not the usual drama club activity and that usually you were doing, you know, you can't take it with you. Well, and, and, and I realized the only way to keep them um, seated and quiet was to put the violence on the stage. Hmm. So I wrote very violent, I wrote a very violent Christmas play where Santa Claus go, goes into a department store with a, with a shotgun and starts <laughs> killing all of, the, um, all of the shoppers. And then when I was teaching in Bath, Maine, Bath is, is the um, battleship building, you know, um, empire of the United States, I wrote an anti-war play about uh, a, a, a bomb shelter that was big enough to hold five people and six people end up in it. And so I did this anti-war play in this town where all of my students' parents worked at the Bath Ironworks building battleships. And it was a triumph. <laughs> so, you know. Do you ever go back and look at your early works? Did you save your early works? I mean, do you have your fourth grade essay? Do you have the very first play you ever tried to write? And do you look at it and... and I have it, but I don't look at it. Yeah, huh. me too. Yeah, I have it. So yeah, they're there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. It's hard to... Uh... Oh, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting because as you talk about influences and you were writing, I mean, we could, now we would call what you were writing in some ways site-specific theater. Because yes. you were writing for a particular audience in a particular right. place to serve a particular purpose rather than simply exploring what most interested you. So. And the other thing that I find, I mean, it was, I, I was very moved by Sarah Rule's essay where she says that theater essentially is about loss. And I was thinking that because of those years of going to the Marx Brothers movie, for me, theater is essentially about making people laugh. Mm -hmm. Theater is essentially 
about the comic impulse falling on a banana peel. And um, I don't know, I think that's something that, that has been very um, informative for me, you know, in my writing my plays, trying to keep, trying to make my young students laugh, trying to keep them entertained. And that has always been my impulse, which is why I often cast an, an envious eye at all of those writers who have gone to Yale and NYU and studied playwriting in a, in a legitimate, serious, thoughtful way. And I see myself as this sort of burlesque character who basically just wants to throw banana peels on the stage. Hmm. And um, it's strange. And as we talk about studies, if I recall correctly, though you went to you, you didn't go to Tisch. Right. You, you actually went. You went to NYU and got a essentially an English degree yeah. in dramatic literature, yeah. but not in playwriting. Yeah, because I really had to read plays, you know, before I was going to write them. I thought. Um, also, I mean, my parents would never have let me oh. apply to the Tisch School of the Arts. Hmm. Um, so I did. I, I graduated, you know, with a literature degree. Um, and that's where, you know, my influential professor taught. But I, you know, also have not had a playwriting mentor, and I haven't studied playwriting. Hmm. Um, but I think oh. that's the kind of beauty, you know, of the theater and playwriting, which is like the, the creation, you know, of the play, you know, involves the form as much as the content. You know, there really is no matrix that you're right. following, you know, every time. Um, so, uh, uh, I mean, that's for me because I also write for TV, you know, which is very, you know, which has a very set structure. You know, playwriting is, you know, is the more challenging yes. and, and the more creative. Well, why were you drawn to playwriting? There are, as a writer, there are many forms in which one can write. Why do you think that is what the, you were chosen or mm -hmm. you chose to express yourself through? I think for me it very much had to be with being in the same room as the actors and also feeling in some way, I mean I had, there was a communal, you know, experience. It was sort of like we are all agreeing, you know what I mean, to choose, you know, suspend, you know, disbelief, you know, and and, and watch this play and believe what's happening. Oh, that's a ghost. Doesn't look like a ghost to me, but we're going to say it's a ghost, and we're going to, you know, we're going to experience that character as a ghost, as you know, somebody with this longing and this inability to, to connect with who he wants to connect with, and and you know, also as I, you know, became a more experienced theater goer, is you can feel the audience, like so you can tell like what parts that they're reacting to, even if they're not laughing or crying, but you can feel like, ooh, the audience is a little afraid to go there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, oh, the audience is totally opening up to that, you know? And mm. that's, you know, oh, you don't get it in TV and film. No, because people are sitting on yeah, the you're watching on your theater. Yeah, you're you're online, you know. Yeah. I, <laughs> Tina, is that the case for you? Because you came from a very literary family. Well, and I wanted to, I wanted to um, write fiction, and I took short story writing classes at Sarah Lawrence, but there were too many words to choose from. She glided into the room. She inserted herself into the room. She stumbled into the room. She waltzed into the room. She got and, and and so my writing was terrible. And they made a little rubber stamp, worst in class, gunk, and put it right on my forehead. And I I was just I didn't have the gift, um, but yet everyone in my family were they were all writers. And so I thought, 
Well, I, I want to. I, well, I want to write, and I want to make people laugh. <laughs> Those are my impulses because somehow, when we went to the Marx Brothers movies, and we were all laughing, we were safe. Um, and so I always equated um, making people laugh and shedding all those anxieties and not dealing with loss but but dealing with with the improbable that that became huge for me um, and so that that was sort of it wasn't so much the communal and my husband had been had been studying acting and he and he was really an actor and he went to the neighborhood playhouse and he was really smitten by show business I never was I never you know, because all of my antecedents were these um, poets and novelists and essayists, and I, for me, it was belle lettre, and I always have felt like the black sheep of the family because I'm in show business. My cousin Fanny Howe just won a $100,000 prize for her poetry, and Suki and Fanny are both um, professor emeritus at important universities mm -hmm. with their poetry, and here I am, you know, writing plays about couples that have children that are played by large hairy men and so um, <laughs> I'm, I've always felt like sort of an outsider and not a real theater person that I that I wish I could if I had the choice of being either Virginia Woolf or Tennessee Williams I would be Virginia Woolf in a heartbeat hmm. if I could write like that that's what I would long to do but because I can't then I decide well maybe if I can sort of create characters like Harpo and Groucho and Chico at the piano and have things fly apart. It's not violence, it's anarchy, which is different. But there's something in me that is very drawn to that whenever I see, when I saw Chuck Mee's um, big love with the brides hurling themselves on the floor, I just burst into tears, mm. sobbing uncontrollably. And I thought, oh dear me, something is very wrong in my wiring. But I think it's that, that in the theater you have license to to go haywire and to and to go to the bitter end, and that's UNESCO talks about um, about paroxysm and going to the unendurable. And I think there's something in that that is speaks to me very strongly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Not to be blatant in bringing up the book again, but I am curious. As you read through it and saw what others wrote, you mentioned responding, you know, to some of the pieces. Were there things that surprised you about the influences of these other playwrights, many of whom you may have known, certainly, prior to reading this? I think what got me the most, and you'll love this, is how beautifully written all of the essays were. And I thought, you know, because so much of playwriting is, a, is about the art of, 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 of not saying what should be said. It's, it's about the art of, of evocation and of not naming what, what is so obvious. And so I was very, I was very impressed and very moved by, by how beautifully written all of these essays were and how, and how the narrative was so strong and mm. that everyone had a, had a very particular story to tell and they were so beautifully written. And I thought, wow, these are playwrights and they really know how to, they really know how to handle the English language and it's not just characters screaming at each other or, or falling down. But um, I just thought it was a wonderful read, a really uh, wonderful read. But you know, it's interesting, until you said that, I never thought about the fact that perhaps what we were asking was a perverse act. Yes. Because our, my assumption was they are writers, they know how to express themselves, 
So while we were not asking the right plays, though I sort of thought somebody might come in with one <laughs> that was actually <laughs> written in right, right. script form, right, right, right. Uh -huh. none of that happened, and, uh -huh. and everyone participated in that way. But, but listening to this conversation, I'm going, I guess it's not the most natural thing. It's not that you just say, okay, I can write in this form or this form or this form. Mm -hmm. um, and, so. and the answers was, were very thoughtful. I was very impressed with how, you know, the amount of thought and the, and the amount of, of sort of, you know, scouring memory and, and going back to those moments and then the, the care that was taken in, in recreating the moment when, when the, the candle flared. I was very impressed with mm. that. I thought it was, um, Really fascinating. Also, because playwrights hide. I'm, I use. I love to use this expression that that that, that I am a reluctant exhibitionist. <laughs> you know that I love flaunting my imagination, but at the same time, um, I don't like to be seen. I don't like to be photographed. Um, I like to sort of hide under under the chair, and and I think many of us do. And yet, in this book, I think we all step forward and we're very honest and very overt and revealed a great deal, but with a lot of artistry. It's a wonderful read. Hmm. I think, you know, the playwrights, we're most comfortable at the back of the theater. Yeah, absolutely. That's a you know, you know, with the audience facing away from yes, us. Yes, yes. Hmm. You know, but writing, you know, this essay, at least for me, it was so, and I write in this, I don't write at home because I have three children. I would never get anything done. And, you know, I write in this, uh, this writing space and um, with some other people and it's pretty dark and it's just sort of like you know the world of your little lamp you know that's yeah. sort of and you block everything else out around it and it was a very intimate experience for me writing this it felt very um, it felt one-on-one -on -one. Hmm. Um, which I, I it was Tina when you were talking about um, I don't know why the Marx Brothers but before it, it sort of made me think also about that difference between film and theater and how that in the theater I also feel like and maybe it's related to what my first experience was, that in a way, you know, what the characters are saying to the audience is, I see you, right? That's what's so crucial about that, uh, the fact that we're all there together, is the characters, not the actors, but the characters are saying, I see you. Um, and that's, you know, that's just inimitable. Do you think that's true in all plays? I mean, obviously in the case of Hamlet, you know, it's a play with soliloquies. Maybe he's talking to himself, but you understand that he's he's speaking to the audience. Uh, Shakespeare has those direct addresses. Do you think all characters are aware of, of the audience they're speaking to? Not in that literal way, you know, where they break the wall and face you, but I think it's in the stories that are being told, really, and the, and the, and the people that are being embodied. You know, it's like if you go to the theater, I was thinking about this the other day, is that somebody, you know, said to me after seeing satellites, and she was a Caucasian woman with an African-American husband, and she said, and she's a generation older than me, she says, I feel like you put a microphone in my house. Hmm. You know what I mean? And those conversations that those two people had were created, you know? I didn't record my husband and I, <laughs> you know, one night and then just type it. You know what I mean? Like, I had to imagine what would it be like for this African-American man to live in an African-American community for the first time? You know, because he's in the play, he's adopted. He was raised by white parents in a white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so the stories of these two people disconnected from their pasts who have a baby, right? Um, but I remember thinking that it was just the most gratifying, much more interesting to me than oh, that play so about you, I could so see you in it, yeah, yeah. was the idea that somebody who I did not know saying to me, I feel like, you know, you wrote that play about me. 
We've talked about parents, we've talked about teachers, we've talked about productions. Have you had the opportunity or do you want the opportunity to be mentors to another generation of playwrights? Are, have you, is that something that you are a part of? Yeah, I, I definitely am. I've been teaching playwriting in the graduate theater department at Hunter f since 1990, and before that I taught at NYU. Um, and I, and I, a lot of my friends are young playwrights. I'm, I've been very involved with the 13 Ps. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I find it so odd that my best friends tend to be former students and, and the young, and um, that I get very involved with them, that I feel a tremendous respons responsibility for them. And, and basically, I'm rather antisocial, but when a student calls, and says, oh, you know, can I see you, and I have some ideas, and I always drop everything. So, no, I'm very, I'm very involved with the young. Very, very, mm -hmm. yeah, hugely. I love to teach. I don't have, right now, I don't have the, the, um, the time to teach, you know, full-time on a university, because I have three young kids, and, you know, um, and I'm, you know, a working parent. Um, but uh, I have done fellowships through the Dramatist Guild, which I love, and I have also sort of taught workshops through New George's, um, you know, which is a small theater company here in New York. Um, whenever I can, I do. Um, I think it's important. I mean, I, I think also especially, you know, because we didn't have mentors. That's just what I was going to say. Yeah. So That's we become one. I, I get a cloak and I get a beard <laughs> and a gruff voice and, and very heavy horn rim glasses so that I can wrap my <laughs> arms around my students and, and be avuncular yeah. and wise. Yeah, yeah, no, it's huge. Yeah. When I can, I do. I actually got a chance last spring to teach at NYU to the grad students, too. And I, I, I just love it. There are people who look at playwriting by young playwrights uh, in particular and say that the influence of film and television has really infiltrated the theater. And so when either in your own work do you feel that's the case and when you're working with younger playwrights do you feel that they're coming from a different place and you, you need to show them the possibilities that theater offers beyond the literalness of television and film. I mean, that wasn't my experience at NYU. I mean, I felt like all of those writers were really writing theatrically, even though a lot of them weren't playwriting majors. You mm. know, I, I, they were really, um, uh, the plays were expansive and imaginative and not, and not at all like TV scripts. Because people ask me to teach TV writing, and I say, I, why would I teach TV writing? You just watch TV and read a couple of those scripts, and then you can, you know what I mean? And also, there's just no fun in it for me, quite frankly. Huh. If I'm going to do that, then I want to get paid a lot of money. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, but I find, um, when I began teaching at NYU, I found that the students were writing plays in very short scenes. And I remember Heather McDonald had written a play called Faulkner's Bicycle that she had that had been done at Yale, and and she was she had moved on and, and was writing a different play in my class, but she said, "Would you read it? Eighty scenes, a play in eighty one-page scenes, and it was beautifully written." And I said, "Heather, I don't understand. I don't. It's beautifully written, but I don't think I get it." 
And, then, and I talked about it in class to, to the rest of the class, and I said, what's wrong with me? And they mm -hmm. said, oh, Tina, you don't understand. We have very short attention spans, and we watch a lot of TV, and, and we see things, you know, that they keep shifting and moving, and this, is how, and this is how we tend to write. And then a couple of years later, Faulkner's Bicycle was produced at the Joyce Theater, and I saw it, and it was ravishing, mm -hmm. and I understood it. Hmm. I, I completely understood it, and it was sort of a shift. I mean, you, you look at dear... Um, um, thing, um, Eugene O'Neill, with his relentless acts that churn and grow on themselves, these churning, oh, you know, 80-page acts that go on and on <laughs> with no break. And then you suddenly are reading these, these, these very sort of quixotic, quicksilver scenes that these, that these young writers are writing. And I, and I still feel today they're doing the same thing, that the, 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 the scenes are much shorter. And so that I feel my job as a teacher is to be a sort of a, a very large mirror that I, I put up in front of the student so that when they look at me they see their own work reflected back to them and that my job is to get them to write the play that they want to write whether it is in 80 scenes or whether it is in four scenes so I think it's very tricky because you have to be sensi sensitive to the to their velocity and, and if, they, if they do the long, crunching plays, or if they're, if they're more nervous and, and sort of um, jumpy and, and, and want to write in shorter scenes, that, that our job is to sort of figure out what the play wants to be and, and to help them make that happen. But I think, I think the writing is very different. And now there are these 90-minute intermissionless plays. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I, people have said that about my writing, you know, like, oh, it has this TV-like poppiness. And this was even before I started to write for television, right? People said that about Stop Kiss. And I thought, I'm sure I'm influenced by television. I mean, that's what I grew up watching. Um, but I, I, I think, and I, you know, sort of write about, you know, pop music, post-punk pop music in, in my essay, because that was so influential on me and I think that that has to be taken into account too is that songs all of a sudden yeah. went from five and a half to six minutes or you know really in the you know sort of the era of bands like Yes and Renaissance I mean those songs were 12, 15 minutes. They were the entire side and of an all, album. Yes exactly and then all of a sudden you know you had Elvis Costello you know with like 26 songs on an album you know so all of a sudden the music also got very condensed you know and more hard driving and shorter and I think, for me, that was as, I think that's as much a part of my aesthetic, you know, as, as the, you know, three-minute TV scenes. As playwrights, do you always have your next play in mind, or do you have to work to think what's going to be the next play? Well, I have a lot of time in between my plays because, again, I have three young kids, and I also write for television to, you know, support my family. So um, I don't get to work on my plays as much as I want. And so there is a long gestation period. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am writing a new play now. Um, and it was sparked by something. It, I, you have to feel yeah. like it's got to be something that just brings together a lot of different things that, you are re that are very alive to you at that time and that you're trying to sort out, right? Because yep. I think what really attracts you is some idea that makes you think, by the end of this play, I am going to know and feel something that I can't understand right now. I couldn't even wrap my head around right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, you know, because I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 
writing a pilot right now that it's in the back of my mind. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So, but I do need a long gestation period. Yeah, and I, I think each play leads to the next in some strange way. And, and I find that I tend to write small plays that are in a teacup. And then the next impulse is to write a really large play with a huge cast. And it sort of flips back and forth. I also think that as a playwright, you have to be working on another play when you go into production to protect you from the inevitable catastrophe that will result when the play opens. So that mm -hmm. most of us um, are always working on something, whether it's any good or not, um, is sort of not the, is not the issue. But, but we have to keep, um, we have to stay inspired and we have to, we have to hope and believe that, that, that something new and fantastic is bubbling up under the surface. So yeah, I think almost all of us are working on something. Well. I want to thank you both for being part of this discussion. I want to thank you for being part of the American Theatre Wing's book, The Play That Changed My Life. It is an infinitely richer book for you both being a part of it. So thank you for that. Thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, and thank you for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theatre, and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theatre television programs which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. Our annual theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and since they began have distributed nearly $3 million. We are also pleased to be the home of the Jonathan Larson grants which support emerging composers and lyricists. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the wing, and thanks for watching.